Hello and welcome to Beckett and, a monthly podcast focusing on the work and life of Samuel Beckett alongside some of the major issues, ideas and art of our time. My name is Conor Carville and we're coming to you from the Samuel Beckett Research Centre at Reading University. I'm delighted to introduce Matthew Feldman, well known to us here at the Beckett Centre, the author of many books, including Beckett's books, A Cultural History of the Interwar Notes from 2006, and Falsifying Beckett, Essays on Archives, Philosophy and Methodology in Beckett Studies from 2015, and most recently, together with our own Stephen Matthews, he's the editor of Samuel Beckett's Philosophy Notes from Oxford University Press. Matthew is also director of the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right, emeritus professor in the Modern History of Ideas at Teesside University and professorial fellow at the University of York. So Matthew, you are now director of the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right, but you're also, of course, a very well-known and widely published authority on Beckett and modernism generally. So you're perfectly positioned to to talk to me today about Beckett and fascism. But before we get into that, before we go on to Beckett himself, I'd like to, I was wondering if you could give me some background on modernist, modernist writing and art and its relationships with fascism, just to kick us off. So I think even to this day, the standard view is that they're separate universes, that modernism is over here and more or less has, if it, if it has to have a politics, is going to be kind of center left or further left in its, you know, in its uh, kind of way in which it, you know, kind of gives, gives uh, space to ethnic or religious or gender minority voices, that it was kind of progressive. And then over here we have fascism, which I think can be easily misunderstood as is nihilistic, is not having an ideology, which has gone on sometimes. Um, certainly some of the more modernistic psychologists, I'm thinking of guys like Eric Fromm, you know, would kind of say like fascism's basically some sort of, you know, stand in for sexual impotence. So historically modernism and fascism have not been put together. There have been books more recently written on it. Um, in preparing for this, I went back to Walter Adamson's Modernism and Fascism, which is a well-known piece about the kind of uh, a futurist role in the rise of Mussolini. Um, more recently, my own work has been focusing on Ezra Pound, who became first a real propagandist for British fascism, in fact, um, corresponded with Mosley and a number of other kind of luminaries um, from his, his spot in Rapallo, where he had moved in, in, in Italy, and, and kind of said in hindsight that he had, you know, really kind of put his chips on the boss, on the Duce, um, who had come to power in Italy two years before that. But really, by the time of the Second World War, it got very ugly indeed. So Pound was taking 
tens of thousands of dollars a year in money from the Axis regimes to broadcast hundreds, even thousands of radio pieces. And, um, and in fact, um, you know, and this is the thing that kind of sticks with me, what were Pound's greatest weapons? Obviously, by that time, he was a man in his, in his 50s. His greatest weapons, of course, were his words. And that feels to me really, really important that he quite happily put his words, his modernist language, at the um, service of, of, of the Axis, and in particular, Nazism. So if I could, maybe just to, to demystify some of this idea of, of modernism and fascism being polar opposites. This is a um, radio recording from Ezra Pound, a, a, an excerpt from it, from the day before the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau on the 26th of January, 1945. This is beamed to uh, allied troops in the field in English. And he says the day before liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau in a, a piece called Corpses, of course. He says, until, oh, until all the goyim simultaneously wake up to the cause of the trouble and determine to wipe out the root cause of war, namely yittery. Why not have the open war against all the race causers before annihilating all the other races or reducing all the other races to slaves and the Jews slaves, Roosevelt and Churchill, are so obligingly reducing the British and Americans to compulsory slaughter or compulsory labor or compulsorily having their houses destroyed in reprisals. Um, now, as you mentioned at the kind of the top of this piece, I now have to spend a lot of time steeping in fascist writing and fascist uh, um, rhetoric, including that of World War II. I've yet to come across something that was publicly um, stated that is, is genocidal in its language as that. Um, and just a final one, I know this is a long answer to your first question, but I'm clearly excited to be with you. Um, I went back and looked at some of Francis Stewart's work and uh, Francis Stewart, famous, famous modernist would, would have in the 1930s, I think it's fair to say, been a better known modernist in Ireland than Samuel Beckett, who also washes up giving access radio speeches. So here's one from the 13th of November, 1943, uh, beamed back to Ireland where the entire thrust is, um, I'm a man of my word, you have to understand this is coming from the heart. And this is one of many passages like the one that we've heard from Pound, one of many, many inflammatory or anti-Semitic passages. And there Francis Stewart says, I admired Hitler from the first days of power in Germany. In another book of mine, he's referring to Try the Sky here, um, written in 1932 and published in New York and London in 1933, I described a clash between brown shirts and government forces in Munich in which I did not hide my sympathy for the revolutionaries as they then were. Um, and again, this was, this was a paid work over German radio. So I think that there's an idea that fascism and modernism are antithetical. And I think that that idea is a wrong one. And that, of course, communists can be modernists as well. But I don't think that there has to be a particular political attachment to modernism. And in fact, retracing some of the roots of fascism, especially in the late teens and early 20s, one really finds particularly the futurist type, um, you know, over massively overrepresented in the ranks of the early fascists. Fascinating. Um, interesting that you bring up Francis Stewart. Um, as well as Pound. I was also, as you were talking there, I was also thinking of Yeats, of course, who's another um, modernist, strongly attracted to extreme right-wing politics. And I was wondering if you had any sense of, of was there anything particular, um, any common denominator that kind of attracts 
people like Yates and Pound, who of course knew each other as well, to um, to the right. Just I guess one of the things that you know a lot more about this than I do, but um, one of the things I I do know about Pound and Yates is that they did share an interest in in the esoteric, for example. Exactly right. Um, and that idea of of secret knowledge. I wonder if that has anything to do with it or? Yeah. And uh, in fact, in, in preparing for this, and I did a piece on this about from esotericism to fascism, the idea of a kind of a secret, not just secret knowledge, but a secret elite who possesses that knowledge. Um, now, that doesn't mean that fascism in different forms doesn't also reach out across different classes. So, for example, Nazism pretty much right the way through had a 40% buy-in from the working class. It was a substantially... Uh, important aspect of Nazism. But the fascist leaders and ideologues did tend to be uh, upper or upper middle class kinds of people who understood, you know, a, who took a sort of elitist view against the masses. And I think we see that in Yates and Pound. Once you add to that, and of course, historical circumstances come in here, the First World War and the rise of the fascist movements themselves, the examples that they set, but I think this idea of sort of mastery of form, uh, clearly a lot around virility, you know, those are kinds of things that don't have to be fascist at all. Um, people are talking about virility who are apolitical. But I think that once you channel those things into the belief that a new society is around the corner and that you have to break some eggs to get there, um, once you can project that onto, and obviously in Pound's case, Italian fascism and later uh, German Nazism, or, or in fact, in, in Yates's case, the blue shirts, which were not nearly as extreme and arguably not a, a quote unquote fully fledged fascist movement. I think once you have those examples to project out on, you yeah. say, well, I, I certainly am much more close to this than some sort of international equality brotherhood of, of man, or as we yeah. might say now, of man and woman. Um, and, and I think the example on the inverse side of Bolshevism, of, of the USSR, was something that a lot of middle-class intellectuals saw as the absolute anathema of, of everything that they believed in. Turning to Beckett, um, one of the reasons that I brought up that notion of esotericism as something in common between Pound and, and Yeats and, and many others, and as you developed, it was, it, you know, it is an important aspect, this idea of a, of a falling away and a, of a, a kind of degeneracy um, in culture, which needs to be um, counteracted by an elite, as you say, mm. you know, thinking about Beckett and thinking about his um, his cast of mind and his aesthetics and his attitude, you know, that's one thing that is just that is just not there. I don't think I I can't think of any examples of that kind of patrician attitude towards culture. I mean, he was a man, as we both know steeped in culture but that idea of being you know a last man kind of holding out against the barbarous hordes it's simply not there in the way that it is in in Yeats and Pound, Eliot, Francis Stewart probably too many others um, so that yeah that's it's, it's fascinating and perhaps later on we can talk a little bit about other kind of about Beckett perhaps Beckett's position as kind of reacting against certain um, certain attitudes which we might associate with those artists who, who, um, who did associate themselves with with fascism. But, um, but I want to I, I want to go on. You already you've you've spoken about the 1930s, Pound in the 20s, and then into the 30s in Italy. Francis Stewart going to Germany, 
um, Beckett, I think, knew Stuart um, vaguely. He, he, he's mentioned a couple of times in, in Beckett's letters in the 1930s. Um, Beckett, when he went to Paris, I think also knew several figures who were kind of, um, we, we would now associate with, with the French right wing at the time, um, including one of his close friends, Georges Pellerson. Um, but I just wonder if you could begin to kind of talk about, about the context of the 1930s in Beckett's life um, as, it, and, you know, as, it, as it comes to bear upon this question of, of his political relationship with, with the right. Yeah, and I'm gonna um, perhaps even go back a couple of years before that. So um, I was looking again, and um, I don't believe it's received any comment. I don't believe Beckett scholars, um, that there's any traces of this for us. But of course, Beckett, um, in his final year of university, goes and spends the summer, about one or two months, in fascist Italy in 1927. So he gets there uh, in the summer, only two months before. And I think uh, this is a famous Italian charter of labor, um, which kind of sets up corporations, set up in April 1927. It's probably the best example of a definition of a self-definition of what fascism is. So if you'll permit me, it's only two sentences. Start of the charter of later, labor, um, spring 1927, the Italian nation is an organism having ends, life, and means of action superior to those individuals, singly or in groups of which it is composed. It is a moral, political, and economic unity realized wholly in the fascist state. Now, a, a final quotation I'm going to uh, share with you, if that's all right. There's a very, very famous line that people who are interested in Beckett and Schopenhauer oftentimes point to only three years later, July 1930. But there's a snippet in that that I think people forget about. And he says he's speaking about himself as one who's interested in Leopardi and Proust, quite well established, rather than Carducci and Barres. And it's a kind of throwaway line, really, to McGreevy. But I, I went back and looked at Adamson's Modernism and Fascism, which we mentioned before. And then it's, it, before World War I, Adamson says, in the spiritual nationalist culture, the major figure was the poet Carducci. And in another uh, study of the French right, Barres is called the high priest of nationalism. Now, even before we get into some of the more overt political stances Beckett takes in Nazi Germany, uh, his stance in, on, this, on the Spanish Civil War, and of course, famously, you know, his work with the resistance, even before that, um, Papini, for example, described as early as 1904 as the first evangelist of nationalism, one of these kind of proto-fascists. You know, he, um, Beckett reviews Papini's book on Dante and littered throughout are references to Eno. 12, which is um, because in their hubris, the Italian fascists reset the entire clock. So 1922 was year one. So this is 1934. It really turns up his nose at that, turns up his nose at, at Pound's work in 1934 a little bit. He's, he has more praise for that. But I think some of that feels to me almost instinctual, that he hadn't spent time in Nazi Germany. But this is a guy who, and, and we might come on to it a little bit later, I don't think is of the far left, what we might call the communist left. It might be, you know, kind of the soft left or, or pink rather than red. But I think even instinctually, guys like Carducci and Barres just turn him off, even as a 20-something person. And I think that there is something that is uh, no doubt, you know, he, that would have its influences um, and it would have some mentors that he might have looked to. But that feels to me almost instinctual, even before we get into, um, you know, Beckett's more explicit political engagements in the mid-1930s. Absolutely. 
I think I mentioned earlier on about his his exposure to certain circles in France in the early 30s. And I think that's absolutely an index of that, his reference to Barres and um, Carducci. I think there was there was a circle at the Ecole Normale Supérieure when he was working there. I think they might have just graduated people like Thierry Monnier, who who went on to um, they moved to the far right in, in the late 30s, in, in 1937, 1938, became fascists. And I think it's them that he's talking about there. I mean, he, he was aware of this for sure. I didn't know about the Papini, um, but that's really interesting as well. The, the charter, the fascist charter that you mentioned, the way it describes the state as an organism with its own life, fascinating also, I think, in terms, in terms of Beckett's work and, his, and li- the idea of life in his work. You know, and and the organism. Perhaps we come back to that later. Sorry? This hasn't really been touched on very much, but I think you know. Again, we I think it's right. Some of the when we think about fascist aesthetics, you know, we think of the people all in the same shirt, you know, serried along in a totalitarian state. It is inconceivable that Beckett spent a couple months in in uh, Venice and and especially Florence. And yes, he's looking at the art, and it's you know something I hope we touch on later because uh, you know your knowledge in that area is extremely impressive but it is inconceivable to me that he wouldn't have had some idea that this is a non-democratic political movement founded on the idea of the organization of of life even the militant organization of life rather than the imagination of the individual yeah yeah and um i know i mean you know much more about this than me but um, preparing for this i did notice that there, there seems to be quite a lot of work coming out at the moment about fascist about Italian aesthetics Italian fascist aesthetics in particular and the importance of that the importance of the cultural side of things um and you know Beckett as you said would have been very attuned to that you know he would have noticed it as we know from the German diaries and perhaps this is a good point to um to segue into those so he was he was not only in in Italy in the late 20s he was also in Germany in 1936-1937 um, and perhaps you could say a little bit about that, Matthew. Yeah, and um, I know that some of your work on the paintings that he saw there is it's it's wonderful to follow. Um, I say follow because I know that sometimes you actually include the images and on Twitter, and um, you know, just fantastic. Mark Nixon, of course, has written very widely on these as well. And um, I'm not sure we can ever settle on exactly why Beckett chose Nazi Germany. There's probably a sense that some of the artists, the quote unquote decadent modernists weren't going to be around very long. And Beckett himself says, when I hear that the author is in retirement, I know I'm on the right thing. <laughs> so we're clearly not talking about the sort of, you know, the, the great German art exhibits. Um, although there's a fascinating story, if we have time uh, to tell you about that, um, un- because the idea that Nazi Germany was anti-modernist is, is again, mistaken and, and partial based on a, um, a partial understanding of the sources. But there is no doubt that as Beckett is con- con- uh, sort of saying to his diaries at this time, you know, they must fight soon or bust. Um, you know, he's, he complains about the NS gospel and uh, another waiter who starts with the Nazi litany. You know, you couldn't read those diaries and come away saying that he was apolitical in Nazi Germany. Now, obviously, he couldn't say these things publicly. He was living in a totalitarian state where comments overheard literally could get you sent in Beckett's case, it would have been expelled, but sent to a concentration camp. Um, and one thing that I, I think maybe to, to bring us back to this, what I've called Beckett's political nominalism, um, is 
another line that he says in early 1937 is, I say the expressions historical necessity and German, Germanic destiny start the vomit moving upwards. Now, these are, of course, kind of core ideas of, of Nazi biological racism, this idea of a sort of a Third Reich, which was, of course, based on the First Reich between 800 and 1800 and the Second Reich between 1870, 71, and, and 1918. So this kind of historical necessity that the thousand-year Third Reich had been initiated only four years before German destiny. And I, I couldn't help but think that the line that he says later um, is one that, will, that is also familiar and is well-quoted in, in Beckett's um, um, letters, the first volume, where he sort of falls out a little bit with Thomas McGreevy over their shared love, the great Irish painter, Jack Yates. And I think that, that Beckett's objection is that um, McGreevy's making him a bit too much of a national treasure. And he says, I'm sorry, my chronic, this is Beckett, my chronic inability to understand as a member of any proposition, a phrase like the Irish people, or to imagine that it ever gave a fart in its corduroys for any form of art whatsoever, or that was ever capable of any thought or act other than the rudimentary thoughts and acts belted into it by the priests and by the demagogues in the service of the priests. This, I, again, that feels to me like a political nominalism. And I think we may get a chance to talk about that in, in the way in which he, sure. he specifically intervenes in, in particular cases. Vaclav yeah. Pavel perhaps is the most famous one, but there are a number of other issues. Um, and, and I think that that comes through that if anything, the opposite of a political nominalism is a political totalitarianism. And I really do think that obviously we see that in Nazi Germany and that Beckett also perceived that in the USSR, which is why he was actually supporting dissidents in the Soviet Union. And I think that, that feels to me, because um, uh, Shane Weller has also kind of talked about this, this feels to me important that Beckett wasn't a man of the left as some want him to be, certainly wasn't a man of the right, but we're kind of at danger of imputing our own politics into somebody who really, I think, kept abreast of affairs and uh, intervened uh, where he thought he could help. Yeah. But in terms of someone, could you imagine meeting Beckett at a pub and saying, are you on the left? Are you a, a social Democrat, Samuel Beckett? Are you a, a, a communist? I, I just think he'd refuse the question. He'd refuse the very premises of the questions. I think so too, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, it's very interesting that you bring up that quote from um, about Jack Yates and, and, and the idea of the people um, and linking that to the idea of totalitarianism that you mentioned earlier on. Obviously, you know, Ireland wasn't a totalitarian state, yeah. but it was a theocracy to an extent, um, you could possibly argue. And perhaps someone of Beckett's background might have experienced it in that way. Yeah, he certainly would have been hostile to some of the more, I guess you could say, kind of the reactionary Catholicism or the Catholic mm -hmm. right, which yeah. at that time was, of course, running amok across Europe, especially yeah. in the continent, and, you know, was supporting a lot of non-democratic regimes and movements. Uh, and I say this as a, a proud Catholic. It's, it's, it's one of the lowest points. Um, imagine a place like um, Croatia during the Second World War, where even the Nazi plenipotentiaries there are saying, you, you know, you Catholic fascists are too overtly violent for us. It's scarcely impossible to, to imagine. And yes, I think, you know, Beckett's own, um, we, we can call it agnosticism, but I think it was probably a little bit more than that, you know, certainly wouldn't have endeared him to the Catholic right. 
um, and there wasn't, a, to my knowledge, a huge Catholic left at the time that we might be more familiar with in, let's say, Latin America after the sure. World War. Yeah, yeah. Um, and certainly in France, I think, you know, with Action Francaise and people like that, with, you know, the links between religion and nationalism and the right um, would have been apparent to him again in those circles, I think, in the 1930s. But yes, um, I guess that kind of brings me neatly to, you know, Beckett's famous phrase, um, rather France at war than Ireland at peace. He supposedly said when he when he left Ireland to go back to Paris in 1939, I think it was. Um, and of course, Beckett's activities during the war are, are crucial to any understanding of his relationship with fascism, I think. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And remember, you know, a lot of his confreres at that time were quite happy to sit out the war in a prisoner of war camp or, you know, riding away like Sartre, who later, of course, you know, dismisses Godot, which I think many people have, have rightly said, you know, uh, has some relation to his experiences of the war. You know, he just dismisses it. This is Sartre in his Stalinist phase as profoundly, essentially bourgeois in content. And uh, Lukács goes even further, calls it the utmost pathological human degradation. So Beckett is not liked by the communist left. There's no doubt about that. And it certainly wasn't fighting for communism that motivated Beckett to join the resistance. But I really think, and, and this might be at the core of, of, of what we're talking about here in terms of Beckett and politics generally, that I think it was a, an aversion or a real wariness towards power we see this in the way in which perhaps uh, policemen are, are configured in his work, but also maybe less about uh, rejection of power or, or fear of power than it is sympathy with the suffering and the oppressed. And that feels to me like a really key driving force in Beckett's, let's call it Beckett's nominalist politics, that this person here is suffering and needs help. And I believe that Again, at, at risk of, of turning that nominalism into France needs my help, um, I think Beckett realized um, that, that you know, people like him had a certain skill set. Obviously, he was doing translation work for the resistance, and he was later you know, given awards for, for doing serious things. But I think that he felt at the time that he couldn't just sit on the sidelines. He had spent some time in Nazi Germany that we've we've discussed, and clearly, you know, that wasn't something that he was, uh, you know, simpatico with, and you know, really did put his life on the line, um, working with the resistance far before. And this is a, feels to me an essential point: far before it was fashionable to do so. And we're talking about 1940 and 41. Um, you know, really everybody and their brothers in the resistance by 1944. But this is, you know, he has to flee Paris and goes down to Roussillon, um, you know, finds himself hiding out under assumed names with his partner. Um, you know, this was a lot more than passing on the odd message. And I think that, yeah. uh, again, um, because he was, I think it's fair to say, modest about his own role, we don't talk about it that much. But I think that it's absolutely right to say that would have been a very pivotal period for Samuel Beckett. Yeah, absolutely. Um and as you say, reflected in the work, reflected in his most famous work, Godot, but also in, in the trilogy, for example, as um, um, Andrew Gibson has argued in his little biography. Um, yeah, you, you've mentioned a few times this idea of nominalism and political nominalism as a way of thinking about Beckett's political commitment or his, um, as a way of thinking about Beckett's 
um, kind of antipathy to anything remotely like fascism. Um, could you say a little bit more about this idea of nominalism, about what it actually means and where yeah, you and get I, this, I, this term from? Sure. And, and it's, it, it's, I think, the, the biggest part of Beckett's interest in philosophy that hasn't been well covered by scholars. So he goes back and compiles in the 1930s a, a, a history of philosophy that starts, a history of Western philosophy really is uh, what he's focused on that starts with ancient Greece and basically ends with Nietzsche. Although quite tellingly, Nietzsche's page is sort of gone, whether or not it got accidentally missing or never got transcribed. It's meant to be the history of Western philosophy. And the bit that clearly he's very fascinated by is the debate between nominalists who believe that there are no copies of things and realists or universalists who believe that let's say trees, for example, are all uh, one generic tree. Whereas a nominalist would say, actually, we can't talk about this elm tree or this pine tree because they're all individually different. Now, this was something that really um, was at the founding, interestingly, of universities a thousand years ago. This debate was like the hot topic at the time. And um, it was really in conversations with Shane Weller and a few others that I thought that political nominalism, I'm going to enter into this particular instance. And it doesn't mean that I'm against the left or against the right, but I'm going to try and save what can be saved, to take Camus' phrase from the plague. I'm going to try to intervene where I can help. And there's a number of examples. I mean, he, he hides some of the books by Henri Alleg, um, referring to uh, torture in France during the Algerian war. Alleg was a communist. Now, at the same time, in his, some of his letters to Adorno, he talks about the Marcuse Jugend during 1968. Um, so clearly, he's, uh, in fact, he follows it up. Was ever such rightness joined to such foolishness? You know, again, that's not somebody who's kind of blindly following the left and what it says. Yet again, there are still voices on the left like Terry Eagleson that says, unusually among modernist artists, the supposed purveyor of nihilism, Beckett, was a militant of the left, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, again, yeah. I don't know if anybody who's familiar with Beckett's work would, would find him to be a militant of the left, but that didn't preclude him from taking stands. And of course, some yeah. of the stands he's most famous for are on behalf of a, a communist, dis, a, a dissident in uh, then Czechoslovakia, Václav Havel, um, writes catastrophe or dedicates it to, uh, dedicates catastrophe to Havel, dedicates works, uh, I think it's uh, one of his late Merlotonad poems to Nelson Mandela, uh, is donating money towards um, uh, Amnesty International. Now again, those are, I think it's fair to say, progressive causes. And at the same time, he's doing a lot of these things. He's telling anybody that wants to listen in his letters, Kay Boyle in particular, Richard Seaver, don't get yourself arrested protesting against the Vietnam War. Mm. So this is just not a kind of leftist that people might be familiar with as somebody who lived right the way through the 20th century, you know, was alive during the First World War, you know, took part as a resistance figure in the Second World War. And really was, you know, around for the entirety of uh, or, or just about the entirety of the Cold War. And I don't think that we could say that he was aligned with any of the sort of grand narratives on either left or right during his lifetime as a result of that. Sure, absolutely. And isn't there isn't there a letter to Ke Boyle about the Eichmann trial where he There is. 
I um I asked that Beckett brain, Mark Nixon, if he could come up with it, and uh, we're still waiting on it. But again, it's you know it's certainly not pro Eichmann, but you know it doesn't come off as somebody who is tribal in their politics. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think in that letter he says something. He says to her, "What would Joyce have done?" You know, or something, or like, "What would Joyce's attitude have been towards this?" Or how would he have engaged with with this situation in his work? And and the implication was that you know Joyce would not have conventionally committed himself. Um, you know, despite the atrocities that and you know if. If there is any kind of hero in, in, in Beckett's life, it's Joyce in, in a sense, you know. And I mean, heroism is something that I wanted to come on to as well, maybe slightly later when we talk about the work, you know, the, the role of the hero in, in kind of in right wing mythology. There's there is a certain heroism in Beckett and it's and Joyce, I think, is the main figure. But we can come back to that. Well, if I could just stop you, though, because I think you're absolutely right. And I go, f- I think that's the letter uh, to Cape Oil where he says, Actually, you know, Joyce in his last years did everything he could to help Jews get out of France and Germany and, uh, you know, people that he had worked with. And of course, Joyce's closest collaborator, uh, more so than Beckett, was Paul Leon, who was uh, a, a, a Jew from, I believe, France, may have been Switzerland, but residing in France anyway, and was murdered at Auschwitz-Birkenau by the Nazis. And I think in, in Joyce's last couple of years, clearly that private political commitment, we might call it, um, of, of trying to help knowing that this was getting worse, you know, that we're on the precipice of something truly unprecedented in its horrors in Europe, may very well, I, I don't for a moment think Joyce wrote to Beckett in a letter that we don't have and said, join the resistance, of course not. But I think what you say about looking up to Beckett, looking up to Joyce, thinking of him as the master, and seeing that Joyce in the very final years of his life was helping persecuted Jews in Europe, yeah, I don't think that that's a coincidence that Beckett aligned himself with those with that outlook. Um, yeah, and perhaps we could we could move on now to um, to talk a little bit about about Beckett's work and um, perhaps his aesthetics and or the themes of his work um, or, or perhaps the philosophical frameworks that that underpin them, which I know you've done a lot of work on the, the um, transcription and commentary on the. Beckett's Philosophical Notebooks has just been released by Oxford University Press, edited along with Stephen Matthews. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very tricky area, to, you know, talking about Beckett's philosophical interests and trying to relate them to, to his work, I think, is, is notoriously difficult because I think he changed his mind quite a lot for a start. Um, and he was also interested in everything. I, yeah, I was taken by what you said earlier on about Nietzsche because... If we wanted to associate one philosophical figure with with the right, I think Nietzsche along with Heidegger, I think those would be the two main ones. There's never any reference to Nietzsche in, in Beckett's in Beckett's work or in, in in his letters or in his notes. I don't think there are any. You know, there's the mention in the in 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 the notes he took, which which you've published, but again, it's for it's at the end and it's pretty cursory, which is strange given that he was so influenced by Schopenhauer, for example. And he was so interested in German culture as well, and German romanticism, idealism, um, Goethe. But Nietzsche is, is, is entirely missing. And sometimes I think that, you know, that there's a kind of clue there. That, you know, there's something about that, about that kind of Nietzsche's investment in, in biological life and in the notion of heroism, in decision and action, masculinity, all of that stuff. 
you know, Beckett's work sometimes seems to me just like a reaction against that whole schema, in a way. Just wondering if, if just as a way in to start thinking about the work and the themes of the work, you know, if there's anything you'd like to take up there. I'm, I'm uh, cautious. I mean, I hear what you're saying about Nietzsche. We could add some of the German romantics and Hegel, all of these people that Beckett doesn't gravitate yeah, towards. Yeah, yeah, Hegel, absolutely. You know, there's an absence. Now, those might be people who were later on picked up by fascists or, or Nazis in their case. But I, I still am, am keen to make a key distinction between them. You know, Nietzsche died in 1900. And somebody like sure. Heidegger, who was a dues-paying Nazi member from May 1933 to May 1945. And I think, you know, what we see in all of them, but in particular, the Heideggers and the Schmitz of the world, you know, authentic decision strength and this word that to me is the opposite of beckett power yeah. and i think absolutely right that there is again i don't know if we call it a reaction or an aversion or simply just an unwillingness to play those games of power um and i think it's it's probably not too controversial to say that beckett is invested in impotence and weakness you know the things that we would characterize as the opposite of power and I think that you're right, whether or not that's an explicitly I'm an anti-Nietzschean. One of the things, at least, is a, is a sort of it's kind of cute. And Beckett takes 20,000 words of, of the psychology notes in the mid-1930s. And, um, you know, again, this is a guy that's on the left bank. He, you know, probably presumably pretty up, you know, au fait with, with uh, political and, and cultural developments. And he keeps right through 35 and 36 reminding himself to read Nietzsche. He puts at the bottom oh. of these notes, like, go back and read Nietzsche. He just never gets around to doing it. And I think, I think you're right. It's not so much that I'm going to, you know, like hate read Nietzsche or I'm going to read him and become, you know, an ubermensch myself. It's because he just, it's just not his thing. That's, that's fascinating because I didn't know that, but um, that's, um, that's, that's hilarious, actually. Read Nietzsche. Um, Wait. Tell himself, like, go back and read Nietzsche and you'll, you'll understand where some of this stuff is coming from. And mm. I think didn't care. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, what you say about impotence as well. Absolutely. And even, um, even literally impotence. I mean, one of the things, you know, again, a core concern, I guess, of the right in Europe in the early part of the century or in, in the 1930s was the whole question of reproduction and of Eugenics. population decline. Um, you know, natalism. Um, I think we can see reflection, you know, again, in a negative sense, perhaps we can see reflections of that in the work. I think you're right. And I think it's, it's, it's actually one of the richest areas to discuss, because I think we would all say that, you know, Beckett is not somebody like Brecht, you know, who's clearly, you know, coming up with allegorical characters based on events that are happening right around him. You know, that's not Beckett. And I think to me, Pim Verholst, um, who's written wonderfully about some of the, um, the radio plays, late 50s, early, early 60s, makes a really compelling case, for example, that Rough for Theater 2 is inspired by what's going on in terms of, of torture by French soldiers and, and, and in Algeria. And the way he puts it, and I think this yokes it to Beckett's aesthetics, is that Beckett was not entirely aloof from the political issues of his time. They did inform his writing, but he vagined or subdued their particulars to suit his own interests. Now, if we then turn to something like How It Is, which was, again, around the time, you know, really when French society is tearing itself apart of the, 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 the war in Algeria, 
um, the, the war for uh, liberation by the Algerian um, National Front. He's, you know, really themes of torture and power and abuse are, are absolutely essential to how it is. What you will look for and find uh, or fail to find is a direct reference to anything that's going on in Algeria. And for my money, I think that's because Beckett did want his themes to be universal, did want what he was talking about to be a universalized language or picture of the world, and specifically referring in this case to the Algerian war or Second World War would undo that. And I think that that process of vagining, for example, I think we see also in, in Godot, which is, you know, oftentimes seen as the classic, um, you know, again, anti-authority, the idea of the person who's going to tell you what to do and who to follow just never turns up. But of course, those key figures, Didi and Gogo, in early drafts of the play were, were the Stalinist comedians, Pim and Pong. And the Stalinist comedians, they're fascinating. They were the only people in Stalin's Russia that were allowed to make fun of the boss because you need a sort of release valve. Even though you're under horror, this is during the, the, the purges uh, and, and literally millions of people were being killed um, during this period. But you gotta have somebody that can laugh at the boss and that can make a joke in, of course, clearly circumscribed in, uh, you know, ways. And um, I think that that was an early model for Beckett, the Stalinist comedians. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we find no trace of that in the play itself. Um, and I certainly don't want to go to the wall and saying, you know, this is what Beckett was thinking. I, I, I don't believe that his art uh, uh, comes out that way. Um, but I do think that he gets these kind of maybe flashes of inspiration, the same way that, of course, he claims that a flash of inspiration that inspired the whole play is... Um, Forgive me. Now we're into your territory here. It's the painting of uh, of two men by moonlight. You'll you'll remember the one I'm. Casper David uh, Friedrich. Casper David Friedrich. Forgive yeah. me. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and I think that there is a lot to that. That Becky gets sparked by an idea, so that we know Crap's last tape was sparked by his listening to the BBC recordings of Malone dies. And I think that there could be something to it that, in a sense. Uh, talking with friends or hearing about in, in this context, you know, the Algerian war for independence, that it sparks him thinking about torture and domination and power. And that some of the, the, the sort of um, artistic works that come out, come out of that are things like rough for theater too, and, and how it is. That's um, yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's great. That's, that's fast. All of that is fascinating. Um, and Emily Moran's book and Beckett's political imagination is is a is a fantastic resource for this kind of thing as well. Highly recommended. Um, uh, there's so much there in in what you've just said. One thing which I might pick up on is the reference to Friedrich, which brings us back to Germany again uh, and German Romanticism. As we said before, Beckett Beckett was steeped in in the culture of Germany, and as you will know much better than me, I mean, there is, there's, a, there's a line of thought that kind of locates Nazism as the culmination of a certain philosophical mode in, in German culture as coming out of Fichte and, and um, Schelling and, and Schlegel, et cetera. This, again, it's, it's related to the idea of the heroic subject and you know, the subject as the ultimate, the crux of philosophical thought you know, the individual. And again, thinking about Beckett's characters and Beckett's whole approach to the idea of consciousness or subjectivity or the self or whatever you want to call it, 
it seems it's so antithetical to again to this idea of of the robust romantic subject in that in that sense you know the the measure of all things in a way i don't know if you wonder if any thoughts on that again it's yeah. trying to link here back its philosophical interests with his aesthetics with, with well his let, me, let me try this and and i'm going to speak personally in terms of maybe a lesson that i've taken from beckett um and and i think if i could summarize because i'm sometimes asked you know wow you're doing all this work on fascism and nazism but you worked on beckett Who's this guy and uh, what is he about? And I oftentimes think, you know, one of the great lessons for our 21st century that the, the Beckett holds, and, and, and I feel this way, um, is that Beckett's telling us you're not as smart as you think you are. You don't understand the world around you as much as you think you do. And again, if we put that in its obverse, the all-knowing state, you know, the totalitarian panopticon state, you know, to me, that is the absolute opposite lesson that Beckett is, is kind of enjoining us in his Schopenhauerian way. Not only do you not understand it, but other people are suffering and you have to kind of instinctually push towards them. No, no, no. You know, the social Darwinism that really does animate so much of fascism is they're suffering because they deserve it because they're weaker. And you only prove yourself to be the stronger, better man. And I emphasize man here um, by, by I, you know, crushing those people underfoot. So this idea of, of, of a provisional knowledge, of a halting knowledge, of an impetus, of, of, of again, I think that lesson of, of like, you really probably don't understand it if you're, if you're asked, um, is to me the best uh, antithesis of the all-knowing state and fascist leaders who were so, you know, another word that perhaps we haven't used, were so patriarchal. In, their way, in, in the way in which they ran their states, you know, Hitler and Mussolini, but even, you know, some of the reactionary people like Patan were the fathers of the nation. And I think, again, the, the idea couldn't be further from, from, from Beckett. And I think that some of it does manifest in, we, we touched on a little bit earlier, the way in which figures and authority are presented in Beckett. You know, really, I, I would struggle to find a single authority figure portrayed positively in Beckett. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that's um, the cast of mind, the kind of the, the the world picture or the worldview, which does seem to emerge from from Beckett from Beckett's work as the antithesis of of fascism. Um, I think that's it. I mean, I think that's where we can see the experience in the work. You know, as as kind of you know, perhaps he was he was pushed in the direction he was pushed because of what he experienced, because of, of those extreme hypertrophied images of masculinity, subjectivity, the new man, all of that stuff, which he was so aware of. And that whole rhetoric of, you know, the whole symbolic rhetoric, which fascist and Nazi, the Nazi states draped themselves in as well, you know, kind of Beckett's work in its essence undermines all of that. Yeah. And a lot of times it's observed. Um, and I don't, intend to take a position on this, but observe that communism is, is at the opposite pole of, of fascism. And other scholars, especially those who, who kind of emphasize totalitarianism. So like, you know, there are these handful of points, control over the media and the armed forces and what have you, creates a kind of horseshoe effect, whereby, you know, the furthest reaches of the Stalinist left and the Nazi right are, you know, virtually the same, even if they're at the opposite sides of a political spectrum, you know, the horseshoe itself almost touches. Now, again, without taking a 
position on that. Um, if one is minded to say, actually, a lot of the Stalinists can act like Nazis and vice versa in, in this, you know, what is what becomes the antithesis of all of it? It's almost like throwing your hands up and going, you know what, you liberals aren't better either, you know, or not much better. I'm just going to walk away from all of it. I think it's all bullshit. And unfortunately, it's bullshit that can't be changed. And, and it's that I feel that it's also important as well is that there's a quietism in Beckett's politics. Mm -hmm. It's not that, you know, hold on, better times are going to come. Yeah. Vote for X party. Now, certainly, you know, there's, there's phrases in the letters where he's, you know, he's not a fan of Nixon very clearly in the 1960s and 1970s. But I don't think that Beckett is of the opinion that like, just vote for McGovern and we're going to have a great country. You know, that's not Beckett either. And I mm -hmm. think that the sort of the walking away from all of it um, feels to me, if politics is meant to be everywhere in fascism, you were meant to sleep as a fascist and eat as a fascist. And, you know, in a sense, what is the antithesis of that? Then to say, I don't even want the word politics in my mouth. <laughs> I think perhaps we leave it there, Matthew Feldman. Thank you very much. Honestly, my pleasure, Connor. Thank you so much for having me. 